This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Got a great guest with me here today, Ed Larson from Bass Pro and Cabela's. Ed, how are you doing today? Mark, I'm doing fantastic. Yourself? Pretty good. And I'm guessing I find you in Springfield, Missouri now? You do. You do. Yep, down here in the in the heart of the Ozarks. All right. How long have you been in Springfield now? So when uh, Cabela's and Bass Pro merged, um, I, I was joking around that I was part of the deal, right? So, okay. uh, yeah, that was uh, 2018, so five years. It's crazy to think it's already been five years, but yeah, we've been uh, we've been down here since uh, since 2018. Wow, and it, and obviously you were in Sydney before that. How long were you in Sydney? So I just I just celebrated 25 years between the combined companies. So I started I started my career with Cabela's actually in uh, in the third retail store in Owatonna, Minnesota. I was a 19 year old kid that uh, just loved the outdoors. Right. And, and, uh, uh, worked retail for six years and, and finished my college degree up. And when I got done, I, I made the, made the trek out West to, to Sydney, to the Cabela's world headquarters and, and, uh, worked out there up until the, uh, the merger. I love, I love hearing stories of how people get in the outdoor industry. It's actually one of the, probably the most thing that we get asked on our social media and so forth is how do you get into the outdoor industry? So I'm going to love, love hearing the story. So you're, you're born in Minnesota. So I was born in Rochester. Okay. Yep. And, uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And then, uh, my, my father took a different, a different job and then we moved across the river to the Wisconsin side when I was probably seven or eight years old and, um, basically grew up right along the Mississippi river in Western Wisconsin. Um, you know, I, I was joking. I tell people I had a boat before I had a car type of thing. Right. So, you know, my dad was a, was a freelance outdoor writer on the side. So, um, just super avid into the outdoors and, and talks about dragging me along in his trapping basket when I was three on his back. And, you know, a lot of memories of staring into a spotlight cruising down the Mississippi river, going duck hunting in the morning. And, um, but yeah, I just, I basically grew up with it. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, when I was, I was going to college and I saw an ad in the paper for, for Cabela's, right? A little small ad in, mm-hmm. you know, in the classified section that said, uh, looking for product specialists, right? For, for Cabela's in Owatonna, Minnesota. Didn't know where Owatonna was, figured it out. Um, had to go there and take this test, right? This test about your outdoor product knowledge. And I think, man, I, I grew up with this stuff, right? I've been doing this since, uh, since I can remember. Super avid waterfowl guy, turkey, whitetails, been out west, western big game hunting. I fished constantly on the river and I go to take this test and it's like, Oh yeah. Saltwater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Fly fishing. Oh yeah. There was all these other components to the outdoors that, uh, that, uh, um, I, you know, obviously you're aware of, but, but not intimately aware of And, yep. and it, it's a little bit of education for me that, uh, ended up, um, passing that test. And, and, uh, that was how I started my career with, uh, with Cabela's was as a retail product specialist. That's awesome. And then, um, so you said you went through, co- what was your college degree? So I was in marketing. Okay. Um, 
yeah, business administration with a marketing emphasis. And, and a lot of the work we did was really around consumer behavior, which I really found interesting. Um, and it's still a lot of that stuff is, is still true today, you know, especially, you know, what what triggers people to, to buy things and and how do they perceive value and, and all those things. But, yeah, it was a. Uh, from the University of uh, Wisconsin at La Crosse, so I didn't leave my river to finish up my degree. So. There you go. <laughs> so as you as you uh, move from Minnesota over to the headquarters at Cabela's, what are the what are the positions that you've held in your your twenty five year career now? Yeah, so um, you know, along with that retail product specialist position, I, I worked at Owatonna, Minnesota, then I moved over to our store in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, which is along the Mississippi River uh, in Southwest Wisconsin. Then when I made the move to Sydney. Um, I worked in hunting apparel uh, as what, what's called a purchasing specialist. So I was a part of the, you know, design development of the of the Cabela's brand of apparel and building those assortments out. Um, and eventually uh, moved over to the hard goods side of the business as a as a merchant. We call it a category manager or a buyer over you know turkey, waterfowl, uh, the pet category, uh, trapping, predator, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And did that did that for several years, and then. Um, there was a long time uh, icon. Ryan knows him well. A gentleman named Tom Gallagher, oh, yeah. my boss. When when Tom retired, um, I was able to step in into Tom's role, which obviously some gigantic shoes to fill. I don't think anyone could ever fill those shoes. But um, and I did that for a bit. Ran the whole hunting division, and then stepped over and helped out on the shooting side. And then uh, when I came down to Bass Pro, I lead the uh, hunting division for the combined company now. Okay, so you have got just. Over the 25 years, you've you've accumulated a lot of wealth and knowledge of just about every category that's at the store, which which places you perfect for what you do today. That's right, you know, and I, I think I think the big part too, Mark, is I think just being an avid end user and being passionate about what we do, you know what I mean, about mm-hmm. the product. I think just helps, you know. It's not just a a number on a spreadsheet, right? Like we're in the in the field using this stuff, living you know, and, and, living and breathing it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So that's uh. But no, it's funny if you talk about, you know, getting into the industry. And, and when I when I was working in Prairie du Chien, um, you know, I would, you know, I sold, you know, waterfowl calls from behind the counter. And uh, I, I got into to competitive duck and goose calling um, okay. through, through you know, through Cabela's, just different people listening to me call. I said, man, you, could, you should try to call in a contest. And, of course, you never think that yourself, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I, I decided to, to jump in and... Um, there might be a gentleman that we both know, uh, Matt Gindorf. Oh yeah. Uh, Matt's the guy that, that kind of taught me, I credit to, that taught me how to blow a goose call. I showed up in Owatonna blowing a flute, right? <laughs> and here, here's, you know, I'm in the store one day and I can hear this unbelievable goose calling going on. And I go over and here's this, this big guy, right? Running a short read. And I said, what is that thing? So it's a Tim Brown's half read. I said, let me see it. So he hands it to me. And I blow it like I'm blowing a flute call, right? And <laughs> yep. it sounds like a sounds like a party favor on New Year's, uh-huh. right? But it was one of those moments when you hear it for the first time, you're like, that's incredible, right? And so I just I put a lot of time and effort into into learning it with Matt's guidance, right? And he was the one that kind of helped me out with it. And um, but yeah, so anyways, long story short, I got into the competitive duck and goose calling side and was able to win a few titles in Wisconsin and and get the call in the world down in Stuttgart and um, and there's, there's a lot of that that goes and that, that propelled me into a, you know, I had a four year, uh, career as a guide, a part-time waterfowl guide in the Mississippi river. Okay. Um, and you know, where we guided canvas back hunters off of, off of pool nine. Um, and it was a, that was a fun stretch. Not a lot of sleep between going to school, oh, working, at, working at Cabela's and trying to guide it as well, you know, but, yeah. uh, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how the whole thing came together and just starting to build on those experiences and, and uh, when you start talking to people about competitive calling and guiding along with your, your education and your passion for the outdoors, it started to build that, that right recipe for me to be, uh, be valuable to, to somebody like Cabela's, right? Um, yeah. Well, but, so I got to go back. Was Matt just in the store? How did, the, how did this happen? Because I, I literally, as soon as we get done with the podcast, I've got to call Matt. That's, so it's, so like it's, it's a small world. He literally just texted me before we hopped on. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, well, Matt... Matt worked in Owatonna with me, okay, right? So okay. we, we all, yeah, when we opened that Owatonna store, it was 98. And a lot of people just from around the country just descended on that location, right? Just passionate outdoors people. And and Matt, obviously coming from his, his background in Minnesota, he worked in the store uh, in Owatonna. 
and uh um yeah we just we just hit it off we just became friends and we're still friends to this day right and yeah. and uh obviously it's passed on different directions but yeah matt worked in the in the retail store there in old town yeah such a good guy such a good guy yeah so, so how yep. many how many days do you get out and go waterfall hunting now I tell you when I, you know, when I was in Sydney and we had the Platte River in our backyard, whether yep. it was North or South Platte, um, a lot more often, right? It's the Ozarks make it a little tougher. Um, you got to travel a little bit to to get out, but uh, um, I still like to, you know, take a trip up to North Dakota uh, with some friends every year, and mm-hmm. and we do what we can locally. Um, I've got some dogs that uh, let's just say I'm working on their ability to track deer and find sheds. If okay. <laughs> Rot- rotated, rotated priorities. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. No, North Dakota is a good time. My dad and I, when I was, when I was uh, younger, we would go there for seven to 10 days every fall. And we would, sure. just lo- we'd load up our dogs and we had pointers. We'd load up our dogs in the trailer. And some years we'd bring a duck boat. Some years we'd bring our dog trailer to go pheasant hunting, depending on what basically whatever the year before kind of led us to believe was going to be better in the weather patterns and so forth. But I just remember going out there and, and starting in the morning, you'd duck hunt and then you'd pheasant hunt and then, then try to find some Sharpies and so forth. And just the days out there, you never knew what you were going to get into. No, that's right. And it, you talk about stuff that goes quick. That's uh, those trips, like you said, you get up and you waterfowl hunt in the morning and you know, whether it's Sharpies, Hungarian partridge when the population's good, mm-hmm. right? Your pheasants to your point, and then the evening you spend the evening trying to find those fields and, and prepare for your next day. But yeah, North Dakota's an awesome, awesome place for bird hunters for dang sure. Yeah. No, that's 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 pretty sweet. I've got a note here that you were um involved in a lot of the camel patterns that were developed at, at Cabela's as well. Um, what, what camel patterns were they? Were they, were you part of the original outfitter pattern? No, I, I tell you, so I, when I, when I came on, so I moved to Sydney in 2004 and, you know, we did a lot of, we had the outfitter pattern was established and, you know, like we had this, uh, we call it a stick and limb pattern, yep. but like those realistic patterns called mm-hmm. seclusion 3d back then. Um, and there was, those were kind of established, but we got into this, uh, zones camo, right. Oh, yeah. And, and. So several of those patterns that I was um, involved in the de- design and development of, um, you know, it's it, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, we would we take those camel patterns, we head out to the woods, and people would be climbing up into trees, holding a swatch or, or a piece of fabric, right, <laughs> yep. and just seeing how it looked in this setting versus that setting versus a different setting, and um, just had a lot of fun with it, you know. I guess that would be something for all the all the listeners on here when. Let's take let's let's take one one product. Let's take a clothing product and walk it through how it's actually developed for everybody. Because everybody, I mean, you, you probably get this all the time. They just walk through the store and and see a coat or whatever, and it's there. And they right. like a lot of consumers like me before I before I got in the industry and really started working with Bass Pro and Cabela's. I didn't know the everything that went in the work, yeah. the amount of people that went to get that one coat just sitting on that rack. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? Because we, we we call that process concept to consumer, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it all starts with a with an ideation session or a brainstorming session, Mark, where we'll get into a room, um, you know, some avid end users, some folks from the category team, and and uh, we just kind of talk about what we have on, you know, in, in the lineup currently, and and what what gaps are there, right? So you identify, you know, gaps and opportunities, and let's just say it's a it's a rain piece, right? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about a product that's still in the line today. It's called Space Rain, right? I, it's all I use, it, I use it every single year. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's 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 one that uh, I think there's a lot of folks that are super proud of that product. But but we saw a need for ultra packable rainwear that a guy could have with him all the time, whether you're on a mountain or turkey hunting or whatever you're doing. That and and that that weather moves in, you can just reach back in your pack and mm-hmm. and have that protection with you. But but no, we saw an opportunity there, and you know, for a, for ultra packable rainwear, and then um, you know, so once you kind of identify, okay, there's an opportunity here. What what styles do you want? You know, full zip jacket. You want a, a pull on pant, um, et cetera. And then you kick that over um, to our quality assurance team, and they start drawing out the specifications, right? And in the meantime, you know, we're working on choosing fabrics, um, choosing trims, all those things, right? So we work with several different fabric mills and. Um, you know, if it's a Gore-Tex type product, this was not, but a Gore-Tex product, you work with the Gore team directly to, to pick the fabric out. And, um, but yeah, one of the, you know, the main objective of that piece was the ultra lightweight and ultra packable, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're choosing fabric, you got to find one that checks those boxes. And so once you've got that, you know, the fabric nailed down and your QA team, 
um, is working on the specifications. How is it going to be cut, sizing, uh, pocket configuration, hood design, all that stuff. Um, then that, that you create what's called a, a, a spec pack or a tech pack that has all the details in it. And that's sent over to a factory um, and they'll build the first sample. And then they kick some samples over and we fit test them. We measure them. We, we look at all the different things. We'll, we'll take them out into rainstorms for that particular piece, um, check the packability. Um, and then if we've got changes, we kick that back over for a second prototype. Um, and then once we get that kind of dialed in, then it's time to go ahead and, and cut purchase orders. We got to choose, you know, like how many camel patterns we want to do. And you want to do solids, all those types of things as well. You kick that over and how many you're going to buy. And then, the, the, you know, sometimes that stuff, you you have to order that. I mean, Mark, a lot of times you hear in advance, yeah. right? To make sure you've got it in time for season due to lead times. Um, but yeah, and then it's the, the cut and sew process, the manufacturing process takes place. And then, uh, there's the, the, the transit time, um, getting back over here into our warehouses and then on the trucks and out to the stores and, and so on. And what, what's, what's interesting about, about space rain, which is, which is fun. It's kind of a little bit of a marketing story is when, when we first launched it, we just hung it on, on hangers like every other piece of rainwire, right? And it did okay. Um, and then a couple of years into it, um, we thought, you know, what really sells this is the packability. So how do we convey that? So we changed the way that we merchandised it from hanging it on a hanger to stuffing it in its stuff sack, which is about the size of a soda can. You yep. know that, yep. an end user. And then once we once we were able to convey that to the consumer that it, it packs down that small, boom, it exploded and it's been a staple for, you know, what I don't even know how long now, probably pushing 20 years, right, in, in some configuration. But but yeah, it's a it's a, a long process. A lot of folks involved. The, the, Field testing process is super important to us that it does what we say it's going to do. Um, and that all holds true today, which has been fantastic. That's, that's amazing. It's one of, to hear that story of just that change of it's the same product, but just how you market it and put it there because that it, that is why I love it. So like I used it last year on an antelope hunt, right? Weather's supposed to be 75 and sunny. And I'm one that always packs that because it only takes one rainstorm to come through. And then next thing you know, you're wet for the next, the next day, basically. That's right. So I just, yep. I, you, that's one I throw in when I'm upland hunting, I keep it in my bird vest. I keep yep. the, I keep my, the top in there just in case if it, if it rains, I can throw that on and I'll stay dry up top. It's just one of those things that's so easy to pack. Um, that I can, I can tell why you would take that off and, and just look at it. it would compare with every other raincoat if it was hanging on the hanger. But when you see it is that small, you're like, man, I can literally put that in my blind bag. I can put it in my upland vest. I can put it anywhere I want to. That's right. And I think that's, that's where you talk about the, the origin story at Cabela's, right? I'm sure, you know, Ryan and everyone's talked to you about that over the, over the years, but you know, it was five hand tied flies for a dollar free shipping. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it didn't go. So they flipped the script and said five hand tied flies for free a dollar shipping and bang. Right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> so it's just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's in a product story like that. It's just, you want to make sure that the consumer or the customer really understands what you're, what, you know, what the product is. Right. And, and if, if you can adjust the packaging or presentation to really, you know, make the customer appreciate what you've developed, that, that sometimes can make all the difference in the world. You know, what's the, what's the timing on, on, on a project like that? If if you're coming from new and say we're developing this from scratch, timing yep. to develop to it's actually on the shelf. So there's a there's kind of a complexity wrinkle to it, but in, in a case like that, generally it's it's 18 to 24 months mark, okay. um, which gives you enough time to be able to do that in field testing, right, mm -hmm. um, and make whatever tweaks you need to make before before it goes to market. But yeah, if things kind of fall into place, uh, 18 months from uh, from ideation to uh, on the show which which is fast and slow at the same time i'm sure there's some people that are listening that are going man 18 to 24 months it takes two years to to do that but if you think about the life cycle of it to and a key part of what you said to be able to test it in the field before you actually put it on the shelf is is key so you got to wait that year to be able to get it during that hunting season or, or fishing season or whatever it is out there that's right that's right because yeah if you you know, you build this raincoat and you, you, you miss a step on a seam or something like that. And, and people, people trust their lives to some of this yep. stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's so important. Um, their, well, their, their lives is, is, is true in some cases, but their enjoyment, right? I mean, people, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, we don't sell anything anyone needs, right? Yep. <laughs> so yep. this is, this is fun. We sell fun, right? And, and, uh, it's our recreation and, 
Um, if someone's out there, you know, on a hunt of a lifetime and they're wet and miserable versus, hey, they're they're dry, they're they're enjoying themselves. I think that's what we owe the we owe the outdoor community, right? Is to deliver stuff that uh, that they can count on and they know it's going to keep them in the field longer. You know. No, that's that's great. So, uh, what is so if you're going to the field, um, let's say big game hunting, big game hunting or waterfall, yep. you can pick whichever one you want. What are yep. what are what are the three to five items that you bring with you? All the time, it doesn't matter. All the time. Yep. Okay, so let's 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 think about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about today, right? I think with the amount of electronics that we use and count on, mm-hmm. whether that's you know GPS technology, whether that's app based things on your phone for for uh, mapping and so on, uh, chargeable headlights or, or flashlights. Um, I I bring a power bank, Mark. That. Um, will get me, you know, three or four charges on my phone if I need to. Um, it, it's something that, you know, people don't really think about when they're, when they're heading to the field is yep. that I gotta, I gotta be able to, you know, recharge my phone several times or charge my headlamp or, or charge this or charge that. But a, but a good rugged power bank is something that, uh, um, I never thought I'd say that I, yeah, I no, that's a very, very true, but that is a great one. Yeah. That, that a lot of folks don't, don't think about, you know, um, a good multi-tool, um, a good multi-tool just because you never know whether you're making a, a shotgun repair in the, in the blind, um, whether you've got to just fix something. If you got a good Leatherman multi-tool with you, um, you know, I, I, I've repaired guns, fixed a lot of problems and just allowed myself to stay in the field just by having that one thing hanging from my belt. Right. Yep. And, uh, um, three to five always goes with me. Um, I would tell you the space ring um, comes with me uh, almost everywhere I go um, it, it, in space ring. And then I also try to bring some type of a packable down piece with me as well, uh, especially when you're talking about big game, when that weather can shift so fast um, and you're going from super rigorous to sedentary, right? When you're sitting there glassing or whatever it is, right? Um, but I, I think just the, the adaptability within layers that allows you to, to quickly change um, change your clothes uh, based on the conditions and, and, and have that protection. Um, and the last thing I, you know, anymore, um, you know, I, I've got an in-reach device of oh, yeah. some kind from Garmin mm-hmm. um, that uh, there's a lot of places in this country that have great cell service all the time. There's a lot of places in this country that don't. Um, even in what I would call um, the eastern half of the U.S., I would say civilization, because sometimes you get out <laughs> with there's no chance, right? Yep. But you, you get down in some, you know, in, in some ravine or some valley um, and you got no cell signal or whatever. Um, you know, I still like to hunt alone a lot. I, I enjoy the the one-on-one nature of it. Um, but I've also got a, a wife, two young boys at home, right, that need to make sure dad comes home safe. And um, just those kinds of things, you know, that extra little piece of safety that I bring along with me, Mark. But, um, you know, outside of that, you know, the, the normal stuff we all bring, you got your field dressing kit. I would say I'm more successful when I forget my field dressing kit. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. And then when you bring it along or then you don't see a thing, you know, but, but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, everybody's kind of different, but I think about the things that go with me everywhere. That's, that's probably the list. No, that's a, that's a solid one. So it sounds like, I mean, how many days a year are you actually in the field hunting? If you had to average out the last 10 years. So I would tell you, let me, let me, I'll rewind prior to having kids. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's a good one. Yeah. Before kids. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, so if there was a season going on, whether it was, you know, calling coyotes in the spring, spring snow goose hunting, spring turkey hunting, um, you know, and then obviously we just kick off a dove season, waterfowl, elk, whitetail rut, kind of a, kind of a weekend warrior with a couple weeks holding in there, Mark, but yeah. I bet you I, I would be, 50 to 60 days, probably on average. Um, um, and prior, you know, I would say when I was, you know, guiding waterfowl hunters, I would be out for 58 of the 60 day yep. waterfowl season in Wisconsin, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, I, I try to get out as much as I can based on how my schedule permits and, um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, everything, if you can, if you can hunt it, I, I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to be out there. 
Hey everybody, I'm a believer in using the best and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are. They're the best in the market. If you're looking for accuracy and dependability, make sure to go check them out. Get that gun of a lifetime coming your way at gunworks.com. Doesn't matter if you're going after a big game animal like a moose, bison, or even a whitetail. Sever Broadheads has just the right broadhead that you need for your next hunt. They are the best expandable broadheads I've ever used. Give them a try. Right now, use promo code MP5 online at severbroadheads.com for an additional 5% off an already discounted product for the best possible deal. Again, that's MP5 at severbroadheads.com. From my Upland Slam in 2019 to the South America Waterfall Slam in 2022, anytime I'm headed on a wing shooting adventure, I'm always picking up my Benelli shotgun. If you want to dominate the skies, shoot a Benelli. See their full line of Benelli shotguns online at BenelliUSA.com or drop into a retailer near you. So from all your all your experiences in the field, what what are some of your most memorable? Can it be either because it was a, a something that was really big, it was your first or whatever, anything like that? Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah, I, I I would tell you there's a there's a couple that really stand out. You know, I I was fortunate when I lived in Nebraska to draw that once in a lifetime Nebraska bull elk tag. Yeah, that's a good one. Up in that Bordeaux unit, yeah, it was un- unbelievable. And of course, the I came there from Wisconsin. A lot of the locals hadn't drawn, so they weren't real happy mm-hmm. with this cheesehead that drew one of their Nebraska elk tags, right? Um, but no, I found out I drew the tag on on like a Tuesday, and I remember driving up to this unit. I got some names from some people. I started knocking on doors and asking permission. And first guy I knocked on his door, he said, yeah, you can hunt, but you're number six on my list. And the next guy I talked to, yeah, you can hunt, but you're number four on my list. Oh, wow. And it was, yeah, it was just ranch after ranch. It was like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't really have a place to go with this, uh, with this once in a lifetime bull tag in my pocket. And, uh, ended up leaving kind of the, the core uh, area that was really famous for the big elk in, in Nebraska and going way up north, almost to the South Dakota border. And, uh, there was an old man that was out in his yard and I stopped in and visited with him and kind of told him I was, I felt a little defeated at that point. Like I was going to hunt public ground and, and figure it out. But I just chatted with him and I said, Hey, you don't happen to have any elk around here, do you? And he says, well, you know, I haven't seen him in a while, but, but come here. And this guy, this guy's probably 80 years old and he went walking back into his barn and he came walking out, um, with a six a six point side of a bull, right? right. It probably would have been that three fifty range. I said, All right, where, where was this at? You know, and um but uh you know, long story short, my dad was able to come out with me on this hunt and um the the, the family that, that owned the property um took a pretty vested interest in me being there and they were pretty excited about, you know, um about how I was doing, very interested, wanting to hear, you know, each and every day. So we'd go out and hunt in the morning and um, and we'd come back and visit and have coffee and, and they were big fans of these snickerdoodle cookies, right? So they always had snickerdoodles and coffee ready for us one here in the morning went. And, uh, you know, we, we had hunted a few days and, and, uh, didn't really have any luck. And finally the, uh, the, uh, the farmer's wife, uh, I remember she said to me, she says, Hey, have you, did you guys get your elk today? And I said, nah, Edith, we did, we didn't. And she says, well, I'm going to say a prayer that you guys, uh, that you guys get your elk. And, uh, that next morning we hadn't seen an elk the whole time we were there, Mark. I mean, okay. I saw that one, nothing. Right. And, uh, so the next morning we go out and, uh, we actually had set up a ground blind over, over a, a water tank because that's kind of where we were at, we were uh-huh. bugle, you know? So we're sitting in this blind and this cow comes busting up out of this Canyon, right? Like a bull's chasing her. So we're watching that cow and, and, uh, nothing behind her. Right. So anyways, that was the morning we went down and visited with, with, uh, with the rancher and his wife and. She says, did you get your elk? I said, no, nah, but, but we saw one. And I said, so tonight when you, when you pray, can you pray for a bull for us? She says, I'll pray for a bull. So dad and I go out that evening and, uh, you know, we're sitting in the blinds getting dark and, and he looks out the window. He says, elk, elk. And I look and here's a spike, right? A spike bull. Uh-huh. And we messed around with him a little bit. You know, he was, you know, nice and close or whatever. And, and, uh, and he ended up moving off and, and that was the evening hunt. And so that night we head back down there and we're visiting with, uh, 
with with the rancher and his wife and and i said uh she said did you get your elk and i said no but we, we did see a bull so i said tonight when you pray pray for a big bull right <laughs> and uh so anyways the next morning my dad and i go out and you can't make this up um he had to leave it at, at like 7 30 and it was like 7 15 and i'm cow calling and all of a sudden all i see is antlers mark and and uh this bull come in to about 65 yards. And of course we, we were shooting a rifle and mm-hmm. we were pre- prepared to shoot a long ways. And we were able to take that bull. And he was 363 and five ace wow. as a, as a five by six. And, and, and it was, it was pretty incredible. And I remember telling, telling the, the rancher's wife, I said, I think you just wasted three very powerful prayers on a, a selfish elk hunter, but <laughs> it, know, worked out. it was, it was crazy, you know? And, and, uh, but no, that, that bull was on my wall to this day, and it's, and my dad and I stood over that elk, Mark, and I, I can't tell you the emotion we felt, right? Like him and I hunting a, a lifetime together, and that was one of those those culmination hunts. And um, I'm getting goosebumps just talking oh, about man. it because it's just one of those things that, like I said, from from being in a trapping basket when I was three years old to to that moment, everything in between. Like him and I have been hunting buddies my whole life, and um, so that was pretty cool. And then. Um, you know, my, my dad was a big Peter Capstick fan, right? He read all the Death in the Long Grass, mm-hmm. Death in Silent Places, all those Africa books about Capstick. But I think he got to the point where he just kind of came to grips and he'd never go. And uh, my brother, sister, and I pooled our money together. And uh, and we got my dad a trip to Africa for Christmas one year. And and uh, and I tell you, the, the, the look on his face when he realized what his gift was, um, was, was, was pretty memorable for sure. And, and seeing the old man kind of tear up a little bit. And then, um, you know, outside of the flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg, oh, it's right? a brutal flight. Yeah. Just brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was a pretty awesome experience. I got to go over and, and just be an observer and, and watch my dad, you know, take his, uh, take a beautiful bull kudu, um, shot a gold medal impala, zebra, right. And just four mm-hmm. plane, not an extravagant hunt, but. Um, to be able to, you know, experience that with my dad was, was, was pretty incredible. And I, I would tell you now, um, just about a month and a half ago or so, I, I was alongside my seven-year-old son when he shot his first turkey oh, and, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing how kind of the, the torch has passed and, and the emotions that go along with that, you know? Well, once you're, I, I assume it's your, your seven-year-old, your oldest. He is. Yeah. Yep. yep. It yep. very quickly turns if they have the passion to be outdoors. It, it's more about more about them and trying to maximize the time that they can get outside. Um, That's right. But man, it it like I tell everybody, it's so much more special when my when my daughter pulls the trigger than me. Like I, oh, it's, it's just it's one of those things. Like I I probably get more emotional than she does. <laughs> That's for dang sure. Yeah. yeah, I'll send over to uh, to Lene when we get done. I'll send her the YouTube link that you can see the emotion of my son and, and dad. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's neat. But the hard part with, with today, especially with sports, oh, it's, it in, it, it's unbelievable. The, the, the time demands on these kids, if, if they want to be serious about it, right. Yep. Um, it, it's kind of a year round thing and they're traveling all over the place. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm struggling with, with that right now, but you know, we were out fishing this last weekend as a family and, um, just that time outdoors is just so precious and so valuable. Uh, but he also has interest in sports as well. And just trying to balance those two things in today's world, Mark, is, is, it's, is, is tough, it, you know? It's it's challenging. So my daughter is into uh, basketball and soccer. So she does travel of both plus school sports. Um, and I everybody asks, how many days does, are you able to get outdoors with her? And I say, realistically, with her schedule – if I can get her outdoors seven to 10 days a year, I'm doing really, really good. But yeah. I have to maximize, and most of those we have to usually, like, okay, youth season here is a is a big one in Michigan for me. There's, they get that they get to go three weeks before everybody else gets to go hunting. I'm a big believer in youth seasons all over. Um, yeah. Like, that's one we, we don't schedule anything for that. We don't schedule anything November 15th here in Michigan's opening day of deer season. Um, yep. and then I tried to like, I was able to bring her up to Saskatchewan to our place to do a black bear hunt and she did an antelope hunt and we tried to do a little two or three day trip like that somewhere. Like I, I tell my wife, those are ones that I remember with my dad, when we load up in the car and just drive and go yes. somewhere to where it's not just, okay, here at the house, we're going to go and, and hunt back. We'll come here for, 
for lunch and then go back out. Like that's great. It's not the same as fully detaching, hopping in a car, staying at a hotel or, or something like that. Like those are, yeah. those are what I call the, the life, ex, the life memories that she'll remember for the next 80 years. Right. Like she got to go no, in no and do this and, and same for me. Like I, I enjoy those, but that's, that's realistically what it is in today's, in today's world. If you, if your kids are going to do sports and, and want to be competitive in it, it's not like when I grew up to where, Hey, basketball season was four months, right? Okay. I do it for the yep. four months and then it's over. It's, you gotta That's stay, right. you gotta stay in it all 12 months just because it's so competitive. Yeah. And that, we were talking about that too. It's, you know, if, if you play football, baseball, basketball, I mean, you do it, you know, a couple days a week and, mm-hmm. and, uh, but you're right for three, four months and then you do the next thing and then your summers you're out fishing and playing and having fun. And, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's kids are, they're specializing in one sport and, and they're playing, they're playing it year round, you know, and, and, uh, so we, we've got some decisions to make about, you know, how do, how do we balance it? Right. But yep. I, I'm glad to hear that, uh, what to expect, right. For someone this year's about, but you said about seven to 10 days a year. And, and, uh, I, I, I see it. I mean, yep. my, my boy's not old enough yet. And we're, we're in eight and under coach pitch right now. Um, so it's, uh, and I'm the head coach of that team. So, um, and I was joking with somebody that I haven't, played a competitive baseball game in 23 years or something like that. And, and, uh, the guy that I was talking to, he said, Oh yeah, that was the year I was born. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, what? yeah. No, Where do the years go, Mark? You know, Oh, it, it all turned. So during COVID I started coaching my daughter's basketball team too, which then led to me coaching her middle school team and travel team. And now I coach at the high school here. Like it, it, it gets that competitive fire going. Like I, like I yeah. was in high school and college, right? Like it comes back very quickly when you're coaching your kids. Like, that's right <laughs> now all of a sudden you're like man this, this is really competitive on all fronts now now i'm just as busy as she is so that's right that's right yeah you got those same commitments plus the parents and all the other stuff you have to deal with you know but it's uh no it's fun it's, it's fun to, to kind of watch them turn into people right and, mm-hmm. and watch his passions grow and you kind of understand what they get excited about and you know like with with turkey season this year uh my my seven-year-old he called his own bird in. I mean, he called those he, three Jakes came in, so they cooperated and, and they did it right. But um, he can run a box call pretty well, right? It's it's one that uh, I tell a lot of folks that you know uh, you, you don't have to master a mouth call day one to be a turkey hunter, right? Yep. You can grab a push pin, you can grab a box call, hot call, whatever it is. But get all that other stuff and work on it. But in the meantime, you can go out with a box call and uh, and kill a lot of turkeys. And uh, in my my seven year old. Uh, would practice with the box call. And now granted when, when mom was around, um, we had to go out in the garage or go outside. Right. <laughs> but, uh, um, but he, yeah, he got pretty proficient and, uh, um, yeah, I was able to call his own bird in and got super excited about it. He wanted to see what was on camera. Like, Hey, did we get any Tom's on camera, dad? And, um, he got really into it. And I, I tell you that the, the part where I, I may have had a little dad fail, um, was when we were patterning a shotgun. So, oh. I can, yeah. I can almost tell you the story that you're going to tell me because I'm almost guarantee <laughs> I went through it too. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought I, I thought I kind of ruined him because we, you know, he shoots a lot of BB guns, right? He shoots mm-hmm. a bow. We do a lot of that stuff, um, but not a lot that's got a big boom, boom yep. to it, right? So when I set up his turkey gun, we we put together a 20 gauge gas powered semi-auto. Um, we've got, you know, we had a, a, a tripod for it with a clamp that allowed us to really, you know, take a bunch of the recoil up. We filled the stock with sand, uh, put a red dot on this thing. And then when we went to, to you know, to, to just to pattern it, we were shooting seven, eight ounce double O, like the lightest stuff I could find, yep. right? Yep. And just so we could shoot a couple of times. And, and, um, and yeah, he shot the first time. And the second time he pulled the trigger, I mean, he kind of like turned his head, closed his <laughs> eyes and squeezed. And I thought, oh no, what did I do, right? Yep. And it, and it came time to go. And, and uh, you know, he was almost like, dad, I don't want to go. And I'm like, why not, buddy? You know, and he said, I, I, I don't like shooting that gun, right? And I thought, oh man. And so I really focused on the rest of it, right? Focused on early morning, listening to the woods wake up, listening to birds gobble, running calls, working that bird. And I said, the, the shot, you won't even think about it. And then when it came time, um, those birds came in. Um, you know, my my son got on the gun. He did great. He uh, took the safety off himself. Waited for one bird to clear and, and squeezed and he never felt a thing. Right. So I yeah. think, I think we're good. I think we're over that, but, but I, I was worried that uh, it would come to, to the moment of truth and he wouldn't want to pull the trigger. 
that was that almost identical to the story that I had. It was during COVID, and I brought my my son out and my youngest daughter, and we were yeah. gonna, we I had everything set to go turkey hunting. They except we had never shot the, the turkey gun, right? So you got the clothes, you got everything else. Now it's down to hey, look, now it's time to go, and we're going to practice shooting. Same thing, twenty yeah. gauge. Tried to make it as light. Um, used the tripod, but we didn't strap it down in the tripod. So we okay. get, we get to where we're going to shoot. And my daughter's one that always wants to go first. So she's like, I want to go first. I want to go first. I want to go first. And I'm like, well, let's have, let's have Christian shoot. Who's my, who's my son. And she's like, no, I'm gonna go first. I'm fine. I'm like, okay. Christian's like, just let her go first. So she gets up there and I just remember you put the one shell in and all right, kiddo, we got the box set up and so forth. And she shoots and the gun goes back and she didn't say a word. She just turned and walked right back to the truck. Didn't didn't say a word. I've got a picture that she just came. We came home and she just started icing her shoulder, and she she goes, "You never told me it was going to do that." And I'm like, "Yeah, oh man, I didn't." And she she shot rifles since she's been six, except I mean, the muzzle break and and everything else. You're like, man, they don't even like get the kids rifle. They don't even kick anymore. But that turkey load, that one does that one does leave a punch. That was that was oh. my biggest fail as as trying to get my kids into into the outdoors was just going right to the turkey load shotgun. Yeah, I, no, I'm with you, and we 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 tried hard. I think it was the the boom for my son uh-huh. uh, because I had that thing, Mark. I had that thing so tamed down, right? I mean, yeah. I I don't know what that gun weighed, but it weighed a ton when we had that stock filled up and the thing was clamped down. But it was just that big boom that just he he again with BB guns and shooting his bow a bunch and, and just never experienced that, that, that big boom. It just scared him. And I think, uh, um, you know, that, that was, I, I, I think we're, I think we're over it now, right. Cause we're talking about deer season. We're looking yep. forward to, to getting him out this fall. And, um, he's asking questions already about deer, deer rifles and how hard they kick and how loud <laughs> they are. You know what I mean? So it's now on his list of questions though. So that's right. Moving on to the rifle dad, how, do, how hard does this one kick? <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a progression that I think parents need to keep in mind when they're introducing their kids to shooting. Right. And I probably should have had them on a rimfire gun some more, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and doing that a little bit and then, uh, kind of easing them into it. But, uh, but nonetheless, like I said, when it came to the moment of truth, he was right on that, you know, right on that shotgun with the red dot and, uh, and made a great shot and, and, uh, you know, we just, we, we had all sorts of fun with it. And it, now it's on the wall in his bedroom and it's his, his prized possession, that little Jake and Jake beard. And, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty proud of it. That's awesome. So, yes, sir. So I assume Missouri has a youth season, right? That's right. Yeah. That's, yep. that, that's great. And that's what you'll get them out for this year. That's exactly right. Yeah. So this, the, the youth Turkey season was about two weeks prior to the, uh, to the general season as well. And that's, that's what we were able to get out there in my, we actually found a babysitter to show up at four thirty in the morning, Mark. Um, really? So let's just, yeah, she earned a bonus. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but so my wife could come along too, because my my wife is a super avid avid outdoors person as well. And and I always say that's a that's a great thing um, until that morning, like mid or early November, when the the deer are really moving, and you you know you set the alarm clock and you get up, try to be real quiet, and you look over and she's already up and out and dressed. Uh-huh. You're like, what are you? Doing? I'm going bow hunting. What are you doing? Uh, I'm going bow hunting, right? So, <laughs> so I have to do the paper rock scissors to see who gets to go. But you can imagine who wins those oh, yeah. uh, discussions more often than not. Yeah. So, yep. but uh, but now she uh, she sure loves to go, and and she got to be there with you know along with me uh, when my son took that first bird. So that was a that was a pretty special deal. That's awesome. That's awesome. I can't. We we just struggle to find babysitters in general just to show up in the afternoon, not at four thirty in the morning. So that's more of an accomplishment than anything. I tell you what, man, like 14, 15 year old girl, right. That, uh, got up on a Saturday morning, right. And, uh, four o'clock went and picked her up. She was ready to go. Of course, when she got to the house, but my four year old was there and, and, uh, got to just sleep for a few, a few yeah. hours, you know, but, uh, but nonetheless, she answered the bell and we were, we were pretty happy that, uh, that we both got to be there, you know? Oh, that's awesome. So being able to work at Cabela's and Bass Pro over, over the last 25 years, um, just as special as those companies are. And, and one of the reasons I love my relationship with them too, is, is, um, all the conservation stuff that they do. Are you tied in with any of that? 
so I, I would say it just, you know, just, just through the merchandise sales side, but, you know, I, I've got good relationships with, you know, a lot of the folks that, that head up the, the conservation side of the business. But, but, you know, I tell you when, when, when I think about, you know, kind of the core values of an organization of a, of a company with, with conservation to be at the center, Mark, that's something that, that I can go to work every single day knowing what we're doing is making a difference, yep. right? Knowing, and, that, and it, it hits you when you're sitting out there with your seven year old son going, you know, on his first turkey hunt. Well, man, I hope this, this is still here for him, right? When, when he has kids so he can experience this. And, and that's really what it's about is it's about, it's about the long term sustainability of what we all love and, and that being at the center of, of Johnny Morris's mission, right? Um, it, it's, it's something that I, I tell you, um, man, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And that, and that was, there's a lot of companies that are, you know, that, that come and go and do what they can. But, but man, if you, if, if you look at, you know, what we do as an organization, um, you know, under Johnny's leadership, uh, and direction, um, th- there are so many projects and so many people that were impacted and, and, and so many acres of land and new access and waterway improvements and all these things. It's just a laundry list, um, uh, that, that we're truly making a difference, right? We're, we're, we're truly, and it's the sportsmen and women out there. It's it's the folks that come into our stores and shop and the money they spend with us, knowing that that money turns around, and gets reinvested into into conservation efforts. Um, you know, through all of the different partnerships we have, whether it's Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, NWTF, you know, you you name it. Um, you know, those great great relationships. But um, it, it's it's just a when, when I when I think about you know you know, mission statements and core values and purposes, knowing that again, conservation is at the center of all we do each and every day, man, it makes it easy to come to work, you know? And, and, and Johnny and Bass Pro have shown it through his lifetime too, right? It's not just saying it, they've actually put it where they're going to say and and actually doing it, which is, I don't know of any other company in the outdoor industry that has done what, what they have. That's right. And it's something I'm, I'm super proud to be associated with and be a part of and, and, uh, you know, people ask where you work, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to her about, yep. about Bass Pro. And what, what was interesting, you know, thinking about when our two companies came together, Cabela's and Bass Pro, you know, of course you were rivals for a long time. Right. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, once you kind of get to know everybody on the other side, you realize that everybody kind of has that shared passion of the outdoors, right? Some mm-hmm. people ended up at Ozarks. Some people ended up in Western Nebraska, you know, other folks, other parts of the world. But that's the one common thread amongst this industry is is that that shared passion for the outdoors. You don't meet a lot of folks that aren't avid users of, of some outdoor pursuit, you know. And and uh, so it was it was quick. I mean, friendships were made very, very quickly. And, you know, we all hunt together and fish together and hang out together. And, um, yeah, you just realize that, again, some folks went uh, went to the Ozarks and some folks went out west. But we're, we're all cut from the same cloth. You know, yeah. Well, let's talk Northern Flight brand. What is yes. what is new and coming to market in twenty three? You know, I can I can let a few cats out of the bag, Mark. But uh, um, but no, I think I think the big thing for us with with Northern Flight is just that that complete waterfowl product solution across hunting apparel, across waders, decoys, blind bags, layout blinds. Um, you know, A-frame style blinds or panel blinds, um, you know, so, so a lot of our efforts around Northern Flight have really come down to decoys, right? And, and getting decoys right. Um, when you think about waterfowl hunting equipment, it's either the first or second thing that you say is 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 decoys, yep. right? And, and you know, for us, you know, we, we partnered with a, a world-class decoy carver. Um, he's actually won several championships um, just to ensure that anatomical correctness, right? And, and, uh, but yeah, really expanding out that that decoy um, offering that we've got today, um, you know, I think you know that that that's the the big big thing for us um, is is on the decoy side of Northern Flight. But but what we look at kind of back to the conversation we had around the product development side, right? Is we we sit there and and when we think about the waterfowl hunter and, and you know if Mark Peterson's walking into our store to gear up to go somewhere around the world waterfowl hunting, we want to make sure that he doesn't have to go anywhere else. Right, that we've yep. got him taken care of from his socks to his shotgun to his ammo to his calls, decoys, you name it. And that's really the focus of the of the Northern Flight brand as well, is that we can cover all your needs from early season to late season, um, from coast to coast and, and have everything that you need to be successful in the field. But um 
but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, with, with Northern flight, it's, you know, again, you got a bunch of avid waterfowl hunters, lifetime waterfowl hunters that are in the room, you know, talking about product, developing product, creating those, you know, um, those new ideas that, that we're looking at. And, and that's the other thing about that whole ideation session is there's stuff that, that goes on the board that may never see the light of day. Um, but still can kind of enter that prototype process and we look at it and go, ah, I'm not sure if that one's going to, going to make the final cut, stick. you know, but yeah, exactly right. You know, um, but no, I think with, with Northern flight, you're going to, you're going to see, um, just consistency across the line. You're going to see, uh, you know, the waders look like they match up with the apparel, match up with the blind bags or layout blinds. Mm-hmm. So just to tell a nice holistic story, um, offer tremendous value to that, to that, to that waterfowl hunter for what, what they're getting in the product. Um, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the big thing that we're trying to do with, with that brand is, is really, um, again, give that, give that value back to the customer. And when they compare it to other things that, that, uh, um, that are on the market to, to purchase, um, to get down to the nitty gritty, they'll realize that, uh, we're, we're letting them have some extra money to go buy something else for them. Sure. Well, as, as you know, I've basically lived in the Northern flight um, gear for the last two years with all the waterfall hunting I've done just about all over the yeah. place. And I can't, I can't stress enough how great it is, right? It keeps you warm when you need to be warm. It keeps you dry when you need to be dry. And, and those are the big things you can, you can ask for when you're a waterfall hunter. So I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing the decoys come out this year. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I was, you know, I flipping through the, the journey within, um, I call it my cable top book, <laughs> Mark, that you put together and then your, your time out in cold Bay, you talk about a guy named Jeff. There's yep. a, a guy I went to high school with uh, named Jeff Wasley. He ended up in. Uh, well, that's the same Cold Jeff. Bay. That's the same Jeff I was talking about. Okay, I, 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 assumed it was. I, I assumed it was. But uh, now Jeff and I hunted together, you know, all throughout high school, and and he was just as passionate about it back then as he is now. And um, you know, he just uh, he took the path of, of of heading up to Cold Bay, and I took the path of heading to Sydney. You know, but uh, but yeah. Jeff's a great guy, and, oh, and uh, I, I was assuming that's who it was, yep. right? But him and I grew up in the same hometown and, and went to high school together and waterfall hunting together quite a bit growing up. Such a, it's such a small world when you start piecing it together in the outdoor world. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. You know, his, but, uh, his spot that he outfits up there in Cold Bay is uh, second to none, right? Because you're right on the Alaska Peninsula. You've got, you've got the mountain range coming up. It's the birds there there's just a when he hunts them early there's just a huge population of them um in the weather and, and playing the tides everything everything about being up there is just special right it's it's yeah. it's so different than just going to like where i hunt here in michigan and going hunting a river or a lake going up there every, every day is an adventure that's right and i i would say jeff uh jeff's been on me to get up there mark and i'm embarrassed to say i've never made that trek but uh Maybe if, if Jeff gets ears on this, he, I'm guessing he'll ping me again, right? But uh, that is but, one I would highly recommend to go and do. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. And then, yeah, just that that I, I call it the cover girl, right? The big king eider. Oh yeah, the front cover of that. Um, now was that was that Alaska Mark or was nope, that Greenland? That, that was Greenland. So when we, I had this. So I did the upland. I did the upland slam first. Okay. Um, and then the second part of it was the the North America waterfall slam. So, of course, going into that, unbeknownst, it was COVID, right? So, all of a sudden, all the travel closures started to come. I couldn't go to Canada. I had originally – I was going to start it in Saskatchewan, Canada. And, I mean, it was kind of going to be like cheating because every early Saskatchewan, there's – is there 19 different species up there? And you can do a lot of the the different – you can do the crane. You can do all this stuff versus doing specialty trips to Oklahoma or Texas later on. That's right. So, I couldn't go to Canada. And I finally made the decision a couple because I I had set my schedule a year in advance, and all of a sudden you're like, man, well if I there if I can't do that, and St. Paul was not open at the time, and I'm like, you know what, we're gonna roll the dice and go for it, and hopefully St. Paul opens, and I can bounce around in in U.S. and Mexico and pick up everything that I would that I'd originally planned in Saskatchewan and make it yeah. all work. So we yeah. continued through the year with the plan that hopefully St. Paul would open. And I would go, it was the week after Christmas, I would go. And it gets to November, and they don't open it. Jeff was the one I was going to go with, by the way, at, yeah. on, on St. Paul. And okay. they, don't, they don't open the island um, because of COVID, right? They didn't want anybody from outside the island coming in um, to do it. 
Okay, sure. so at that time, Matt, Matt Gendorf, again, again, small world. Everybody you've mentioned here is all, all, all playing parts of this. Matt Gendorf right. is the one that 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 set my schedule and, and did all the stuff that made it possible for me to do what I did. He did all the yep. little planning, all the, the pre-work for me getting there, the stuff. That was Matt that handled 100% of that. Awesome. Um, so during this whole time, we're, we're now of like, okay, if St. Paul doesn't open, we were working on backup plans, right? Okay, what yep. are the odds of being able to get a king off of Kodiak Island? Well, there's some out there that get shot every year. East Coast, there's like four to five kings that are shot on the East Coast every year. West Coast down by Washington, there's a few. And now you're like, well, there's no way we can rely on that. Of all That's the hunters right. on the East Coast, they only shoot four to six kings. I'm not that lucky. And I'm the same thing on the West. So we start playing with with Kodiak. Well, there's an outfitter that sometimes you can get in the, the skiffs and he'll be able to pick out kings of the eider groups and you can go and specifically target those. And I'm like, okay, well that's, that's a, it's a long, long shot, but at least that's an option because you can at least glass up to see if there's a King in that group of eiders when you're doing sets. Um, And the whole time we were working on Greenland Um, and Greenland at that time, it only had one other group from the U S go up there and hunt Kings. So I, they had pictures of it and there were out, there was outfitters there that said they could do it, but there was no history of it. And sure. at the same time, Greenland was closed because of COVID, but they had a longer season. So we were working on all these different scenarios at the same time. And all of a sudden, St. Yeah. Paul didn't, didn't work. We were continuing along on the slam, getting everything else. And it was down in Sinaloa, Mexico. We had just got to Fulvis Whistling Duck, which was number 42 for me. Um, okay. One left was the king, and Matt called me and said, you're not going to believe this. We just got the green light from the government of Greenland to go in and film a King Eider hunt. And it worked out that we were the first non-residents of Greenland that were allowed into Greenland um, since the COVID lockdowns because of all the tourism that we could bring if we went up there and, and advertise the, the King Eider hunting. Wow. So it was set. Now, the, the negative of this is we had to spend a week into quarantine when we got there. And, oh, sure. And I, I'm... I'll be honest, I'm pretty rural where I'm at in Michigan. So COVID only lasted about two months for me. Right. right. And then I'm, I'm normal. I mean, you had to wear a mask when you went out, but all this other stuff, like I, I couldn't imagine quarantining and you can go crazy sitting in a hotel room in a foreign country for a week, not being able to leave. They bring you the food to the door. You leave your dirty dishes and so forth. It, I can't it, imagine. It gets, it gets to be pretty long. Um, That's right. But it was, it was one of those spots in the world when we went and did it was truly untouched. We brought up, we brought up decoys. I remember Matt was painting a spinner decoy black and white in his hotel room up there while we were in quarantine to be able to use. And it was just some of the most amazing waterfall hunting that there was, right? Wow. Cause everything had been untouched. You went to a rock, a rock outcropping or set up. Nobody's ever set up there before. Right. So yeah. what you're doing is the first guess on what you're just relying on every other hunting experience that you've had in your life leading to that, to saying, I'm going to set yeah. up this way. Cause there's no experience, right? Like the, the boat captain couldn't go and say, Hey, you know, we've had people set up like this for the last couple of years. It works good. Right. Every Island, right. we would pick a little rock outcropping just because we thought it looked good. And you go sure. and you'd shoot a couple lighters off, off of there. And, and that was just one of those. We finally, it was our third day hunting. I shot a King off of shore that was cruising by. And it was just one of the, I lost all emotion when I saw it go down in the water. And that's the one that I was <laughs> holding on the cover. It was just one of those, one of those things. And now we've got it set up through WTA. I mean, we run hunters up there all the time now. So if I look that's at awesome. from the country of Greenland, it's it, not just us, I want to say there's three or four waterfall outfitters up there now. So now, I mean, it's, yep. it's, it's a part of their tourism. Now, every single year you can go up there and, and not just hunt Kings, but commons. Wow. No, that's, that's amazing. And it's, it's, it's incredible how that came together, Mark. Yeah. Unbelievable. You couldn't really, like, it was finally over and you couldn't have wrote it a better way than how it ended. Yeah. Yeah. Un- unbelievable. It's, it's funny because such a blessing and a curse, COVID, right? Yep. I mean, you think about how many folks rediscovered the outdoors when, you know what I mean? And, uh, and what it did just for, for all our lifestyle. And, and, uh, yeah, when you can't chase kids around the sporting events and you can't do all this mm-hmm. stuff, what, what did we all do? We all went outside, yep. right? And, yep. uh, a lot of folks, uh, busy lives came back. I get it, right? But there's a lot of folks that, that, that stuck with it, right? So I think we got a, a good influx of, of, of 
of, I would say, re-engaged sportsmen or, or new, new sportsmen and women um, that, that discovered the, the outdoors during that time, like I said. So it's, there's definitely, uh, if you look for the, you know, kind of a, the light at the end of the tunnel, the whole thing, I think that that, that, that rediscovery of the outdoors and outdoor participation sure was, uh, was, a, was one of the few positives that came out of all that. It was, and I think it made a lot of people, even though they may be getting back to the busy life, they still, I think they reprioritized, right? Because right. before COVID, you could never imagine a world that was shut down and you couldn't do what you wanted to do. So you're, right. like I always say, what we do at WTA is we're the same thing, right? We're not a, we're not a need. We're a want that people want to apply for tags or want to go on, on these trips to experience and so forth. And it was always, I think there were a lot of, well, I'm going to do that later. I'm going to do it yeah. a couple of years from now. I'm going to do it when I hit 50 or when I hit 60 or when I hit 70. And, and through COVID, everybody, I think a lot of people realized, hey, I'm not going to wait to do that. I'm not yes. going to wait to go elk hunting because I can do it now. And, you know, for me to take a week off work isn't that big a deal like it was right. before COVID. Now I, I am going to travel and be gone that week, or I am going to take my kids out waterfall hunting or go turkey hunting and, and do this because it's more important, right? What's more important, those memories that you make. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yep. Yes, sir. So I've got one one last question I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with here, and this is one I, I like to ask. Um, how have you seen the outdoor industry change over the last 10 to 15 years? Well, I think that's a great question, Mark. I think, you know, and it might even go back a little bit further than that. I think the, um, from a, from an industry standpoint, I, I think that a few things, right? So first thing, social media, right? In the last mm-hmm. 10 to 15 years has been, in, again, a, the same thing, blessing and a curse, but people's access to information and, um, and what you can get out there in, in, in front of people in a, in a, in a quick way. And then a lot of people, uh, in a quick way, um, through social media has been incredible, right? Whether that's, you know, people being able to, uh, learn things on YouTube or, or just follow, you know, their, their favorite, uh, I'm going to say hunting celebrities or folks on, on, uh, Instagram or Facebook or one of the social media platforms. But I think just that overall access to information with, with the kind of the explosion of social media and e-commerce, um, et cetera, right? So social media, um, and even from our standpoint, uh, ratings and reviews, right? Mm-hmm. If, if someone loves a, if someone loves a product, they don't necessarily write a review about you. But if they don't like it, you're darn sure they will. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? So, just how how quick how quick you can get customer feedback has been has been a pretty significant change in the last ten to fifteen years. But as far as you know, like uh, you know, product categories. Think about the uh, talk about hunting apparel real quick. Like um, the advent of just people really adopting these layering systems, right? Systems-based clothing, um, abstract camel patterns have really taken the lead uh, when it used to be stick and limb. Um, and then just technology, right? I think I think everyone's got apps on their phone they look at um, every day when, when they're out in the field, whether they're checking trail camera pictures or they're, they're on a mapping uh, app or, or whatever they're doing, right? But I think that the, the technology coming into the outdoor space fishing, hunting, whatever it might be, um, it ha- has just exploded in, in the last 10 years. So I think those things, Mark, just the way people have changed what they're wearing, um, they're changing how they're communicating uh, amongst each other. And then I think just, just technology coming into the, into the fold. Back to the reason I bring a power bank with me yes. <laughs> as one of my, as one of my five items is I've got so much stuff that needs to be recharged or, um, or whatever that, uh, that never used to be the case. Well, you hit, you hit one there that, that is probably one of my addictions now that I got started on a couple of years ago, cell cams. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I could have enough cell cams, right? I I, want to know all like, I am just come August, I'll click on the plans and they will go all the way until January. And I, I've got trail cameras at my place in Kentucky all over. I've got two places I hunt here in Michigan. I mean, I, I am, my wife always jokes. She goes, literally the first thing you do when you wake up is you grab your phone and start checking trail cams. <laughs> and the right. last thing I do before I go to sleep is I check trail cams. Cause then I got all night to, to see what's going on with my target deer. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And, and I, I think it's, it's been a lot of fun. And what, what I think about it too, is, is there's, there's debate around cell cams, mm-hmm. right? But you know, for, for a lot of deer hunters, it makes you think about deer year round. I never turn them off, Mark. I, I, I leave them on because, because of, yeah, because of turkey season and other things for me, you know, um, 
but no, I, you know, you start seeing some deer start to sprout some, some antler, right? Yep. And they go, oh man, I need to get, get some mineral out or yep. I need to go do this or get these food plots in. And it just makes you think about deer all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're a great reminder of, you know, to kind of keep deer top of mind when, when people's busy lives, um, sit in, whether it's chasing kids around the sports or yard work or all the other stuff that, <clears throat> that, that takes center stage or takes time away from, from you thinking about hunting. That phone will buzz. You look down. There's a notification, and you got some new images. And uh, <laughs> I, I can relate to the addiction, Mark, for dang sure. Pretty darn exciting. Pretty, and okay. I don't know if uh, deer top of mind. If you ask my wife, I'm pretty sure that she would say that deer are always on top of my mind. So that was one of those, <laughs> if you, it's one of those. If if you ever take and, and look at your camera roll, right? Like look yep. at the photos that are in your album. Um, yeah. Like if you look through those, mine are either hunting or basketball. Those are those, it's either hunting or my daughter playing basketball and you'll That's occasionally right. sporadically see a family pick in there or yep. some, or a screenshot of something that I, I wanted to remember. But if you look at my camera roll, it's very heavy, heavy on the hunting and the girls basketball. That's right. You know, yeah. Mine would be uh, the same except for, uh, you know, baseball pictures. Yep. Right. So, but yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, perfect. Ed, thanks for your time today. It was uh, great catching up and I hope we get to share the field at some point together. Yeah, Mark, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I appreciate the, uh, you, know, you taking the time with me and yeah, I would love to hunt with you sometime. I, I, we'll, we'll, let's, uh, let's talk to Gindorf and Wosley and figure out if we can go shoot some of those uh, sea ducks. There you go. I, I, you do have to make it up with Jeff. That is, that is, I know it. Have, so I, before I, I was going to end, but have you made it to St. Paul yet? I have not. Oh, I, I have not, I have not done the, the Alaska thing, um, for, for, uh, for waterfowl hunting yet. So, um, it's, it's on my list of to-dos, and, and Jeff will ping me every few years, right? Like, hey, yep. when are you coming up? You know, but, uh, but no, I have not done Island X. I, I, that, that's the, uh, the ultimate bucket lister for the waterfowl hunter. It is. It is. Well, perfect. Thanks, Ed. You bet, Mark. Thank you, everyone out there, for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.